Fritz Hall, welcome back for our third conversation. Fritz Hall is the director of the Spirit of Legacy Project and the School for Knowing Home programs at the Whidbey Institute. He's founding director of the Whidbey Institute and co-founder of the Chinook Learning Center, which he co-directed for nearly 20 years. And we've been having a series of uh, conversations um, sitting in the farmhouse that Fritz and his wife Vivian came to um, well over 40 years ago. And uh, that has been the center of the Chinook Learning Center and the center of the Whidbey Institute, its successor. In our first conversation, we talked about um, Fritz's childhood and um, uh, and growing up and attending Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, in our second conversation, we talked about the founding of the Chinook Learning Center and its transformation into the Whidbey Institute. And now it's time to talk about um, what you're doing now. Um, and one of the things you've just done is to publish, as we mentioned uh, in the last two conversations, this really lovely little book called uh, Iona Report, Story of an Enduring Vision. And um, in uh, the Iona Report, uh, there's a uh, a final chapter called Iona and the Future, uh, in which you talk about the spirit of legacy project, uh, the call to legacy practice, creative generosity on behalf of the future. And you talk about four new ventures or basic elements, um, the awakening message, um, a sacred place of learning, uh, which is the story house uh, here on the land, uh, the deepening spirit, uh, responding to the call and being initiated into the power of the natural world, um, and the fellowship of the journey. Um, and uh, you say the Spirit of Legacy Project was designed by Vivian and myself we serve as primary staff, I function as director, you may add an administrative associate and so on. And then um, you come to the awakening message. And I thought the awakening message um, was really interesting. So it starts with the good news, new vision and energy are entering the world. Well, the good news is the gospel, right? gospel, good news, right, at that level. Um, then a change of heart and mind is now needed to bring a great turning. All that we need for the journey ahead is available to us, and the way forward is together. Those are the core elements. Yeah. Do you want to say a little about whether that emerged to you all at once or whether it was a process to get there? Thank you, Michael. <laughs> um, sure. Yes, I would like to speak to this. I suppose that what you have just said and looking at my book is really me kind of looking back over these last years and projects and interests of mine and things that I have initiated or thought I was. And going back even to my sort of Christian orientation in the beginning, um, along the way early, uh, the one social movement that Chinook Whidbey Institute became totally identified with was the environmental movement. And... In the earliest years of the environmental movement, particularly with Thomas Berry, the news was really grim. And we would challenge Tom, actually. He would get up and he'd speak, and he'd go through a long, never-ending litany of things that 
were destructive, things that were ruining the earth. And it felt like, Tom, can you go further? Is there something else? Is there an antidote to that? Is there another way of viewing it? Is there any good news here? And I think that he felt that in those early years, he and all of us were trying to awaken to what's really happening, you know, what really is this condition in which we're living. And, and, um, and so it was necessary to speak sometimes only that way for the need to wake up and, and begin the course correction if that's possible. And increasingly, probably because of just my own disposition and my experience of Christian faith, that I felt that we are probably going to be better motivated, at least, if we can uh, ourselves work from, um, uh, um, I would say, a more hopeful spirit. Not hope in the sense that we are dependent upon certain outcomes, but that we have a, a certain spirit within ourselves that wants to engage and create and tackle whatever it is that's happening whether we really sense we're going to be successful or not. So at this later point in my life, I've been thinking about what in theological studies we used to call kerygma. And the kerygma is um, it's the word for preaching. It means that which is announced, that which is heralded, that which is told. And... So scholars have been very interested in what exactly was Jesus saying? What was his message? What was his awakening message to the world around him? And so I became interested in trying to think for myself at least, if not an organization, what would we say is our message? What is our kerygma? What are we really trying to say to the world? Or maybe we're not. Maybe we're just muddling through like, a lot of us, and only trying to discover, you know, bits and pieces, hints and guesses, as Eliot says, followed by hints and guesses. But it seems to me that there just may be, alive in the universe, a great sense of at least where we want to go as a species, if not where we are indeed probably headed. Um, and to conjure up in our own imaginations um, a sense of our own destiny, a place of, that we want to get to, um, in Gary Snyder's sense of, you know, getting to that field beyond where we are currently. David Suzuki, the great environmentalist in Canada, says he doesn't have a lot of confidence in this century, but he does in the next one. Um, so I've felt that it is important for us to create in our hearts and minds a sense of where we want to go um, or some way that our journey has some omega point to it. It has some sense of calling and direction and perhaps even destiny about it. That that will help us. That will help enliven our spirits, keep us moving, and help us be uh, creative rather than... Um, Feeling that there's not much point in it, mm -hmm. and just sort of saying I can't do anything, and resigning ourselves to um, relative inaction, mm -hmm. and sitting on our own creativity. So I ransacked Thomas Berry. Okay, where does Thomas Berry speak of this? Uh, and it comes actually in his later life. So in his later writings. And he says, and I'm nearly quoting him, that there is a new energy or a new vision which is entering our big experience. And that it's chancy. Uh, we don't know, you know, if we're really going to make it or not. But it's important to believe that we can. Um, and that we are called to that, and in a sense we're responsible for it. 
Um, and Thomas Berry himself, I think, moved from a more discouraged vision of life to one where he at least sounded more hopeful mm-hmm. and uh, wanted more to, uh, I think, impart that kind of a message uh, to people around him. And so he would speak of moving into the ecological age or the ecozoic age into a new, he, I think, sensed it as a whole new arc of history that we were moving into and that we're in this in-between time. Um, but we can feel the first intimations of where we're wanting to go and need to go as a species. And it's important for us to have a pretty strong sense of that direction. So that's what I'm saying there in the first part of the awakening message. Um, is, and that is to, in a sense, welcome and support the positive things that people are doing, that there is a new energy, there is a new imagination. I mean, it, it, there is. And uh, to put whatever energies we have on that side of things, yet with our eyes wide open to what's really happening and what's going down and what is being destroyed as we sit here. So um, that's what I'm saying in the early part of that, mm-hmm. that awakening message. Then the part about course correction, that's like, mm-hmm. okay, that's obvious. That's, that's what we need to do. Um, and I finally end up, but then I want to say, and I think this is also easily Thomas Berry, that what we need for the journey is it is available to us. That within the universe itself, within the living earth, Alive in the universe somehow is the love, the truth, the energy to create for ourselves the future that is needed on the planet. That that's, that energy is accessible. And Thomas Berry would say that we do that not by domination but by invocation. And he often would use words like that where you'd want to raise your hand and say, well, what do you mean by that? And sometimes you wouldn't get any more than that, but you'd get these powerful words and this sense for him uh, of the direction of things in a, in a very general sense sometimes. And then the journey, as I see it, is surely the one of together, with each other and with all species and the trees that I can see from right here, that um, that's so much of what my dissertation was about, what Thomas Berry would call intimacy, or relationship with the natural world. And it's a strong, strong sense that we're, we're in this together, that we really are partners. So the, here, Michael, here's a piece that I've hardly talked about to anybody, and I don't think it's in the book, but... Uh, what I would love to feel is increasingly we sense that we are almost on a Lord of the Rings type journey, and that it's a really long, arduous journey. And we have this task that we're to do, and you can only do it together. And there will be great difficulties <laughs> along the way. And um, that I begin to think this has got to be an intergenerational journey. So picking up on Suzuki's thought of the next century, why not speak of this as a journey of 100 years? So that uh, as an elder in the tribe, I am wanting to work with, to link with the younger people all the way down to the kids. And this is what we're all learning in a spirit of legacy and that you impart that and help engender that, teach that with younger kids, that they also are creating legacy. So uh, I don't think this is an organization, but it maybe it's an order. Uh, maybe it's a band of people who are just crazy enough to say, let's do that, like you and I, starting things as we've done it. You have to be a little crazy to do this. Um, 
The journey of a hundred years is appealing to me. I have no idea if it is to anyone else. But it's to achieve the kind of future that we know we want is beyond is beyond us. It's going to take a hundred years. So why not say, okay, let's let's shoot for a hundred years, and we'll start right now, and uh, we'll just be in a big journey together. Right. So. One of your core projects is the School for Knowing Home. Right. And I love this proposal that I mentioned that you wrote. Um, it's just such a wonderful proposal. The first line after the great quote from Barack Obama about better to jump in and get involved uh, at the end of your life, hopefully you'll be able to look back and say, I made a difference. So the first sentence in the proposal is, I propose a new school. Uh -huh. You would like that. Yeah. <laughs> You've done it. Right. The school will have the love of earth and universe as its curriculum, community as its grounding force, hope as its guiding spirit, and true sustainability as its ethic. It will bring young people into wild nature where transformation happens. This is a call for you and me to get involved in the lives of kids who, who need and learn, desire, deserve to learn to be at home in the woods and mountains and on the beaches and out at sea, and so on. So um, you wrote this in 1910, uh, almost three years ago. Um, how's it going? It's going well. It's going slowly. It's um, huge fun. Mm -hmm. And... I I like it. I think the intention in it for me is great. It even just what you've read there still for me captures the spirit of something that I'm working for. I'd love to see it happen in my lifetime. <laughs> and it is sort of uh, it's going to take the rest of my life somehow to help help bring this into some form. But I do want to tell you that at this point in my life, after some, like, the heart surgery and these things that you and I have talked about, it's a little different for me. It's like, I don't have to do this. Right. Um, just make it really interesting. Mm -hmm. And in a sense... Delightful, why not? Even when it's really opaque and you don't know what you're doing. And it's like, why doesn't this just fall into place a little faster, please? It's like, it's okay. You, mm -hmm. you, it's a great dream and you don't really have to do this. Yeah. So um, in that spirit, I, I keep at it and I personally feel a whole lot better after my heart surgery. So I've got I've got good energy and desire, um, and I can see things, in fact, falling into place. It just often for me, I hold a dream for what seems like too long or an awfully long time before it really seems to happen. That's happened to me with the beginning of Chinook, happened with the beginning of Woodby Institute, and it's happening now with. School for Knowing Home. My dream there is to, since we, loan, we own a nice piece of land next to and actually part of Chinook, would be Institute. Um, is that the legacy forest? Yes, 30 acres. So it's a total of 100 acres, of which 70 acres is the trust of the Whidbey Institute, right. and 30 acres you and Vivian own yes. as, and call the legacy forest. And that's Correct. where you have Story House, and that's where you do the Summer Shakespeare Festival. Correct. Is that correct? Yeah. And the dream that we all share together here is that somehow there will be a way that that land will, in fact, be part of Woodby Institute. And that's a dream we're all working on. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, I have sort of my own sandbox <laughs> up mm -hmm. on the next hill in which to play. 
And like you, there are times when I don't feel like being accountable to anybody. Right. I just, please leave me alone and I'll do this. Yeah. Uh, and so they wonderfully, graciously leave me alone and I get to invent programs and build mm-hmm. things. And I'm very, very happy um, with the privilege of, of doing that. My dream is to see kids on the land in this beautiful natural setting, kids from all backgrounds. And that's my way of talking about diversity Mm -hmm. um, of all sorts, that that really needs to be at the heart of my mission, which I think is shared with Woodby Institute. Because in all the years of our work here, um, you can get a hundred of us together in Thomasbury Hall, and we're white. Um, and that is always a concern and a head-scratcher of why is it this way and how can it be different in this way? And I think that starting a new work as I am, I think it's critical that that intention for diversity is built in in the beginning. So we are all working to figure out how how is it going to be more expressive of a more of a much more complex um, earth and regional population. So I when I say kids of all backgrounds, I, I really mean that. And I I the ultimate goal for me, and I'll, I'll die happy when this happens, is that there are kids from the inner city who are here in the land, which actually happened before we started Chinook. Mm. There were inner city kids right here playing on these fields between those years of 1966 and 1972. Um, I believe it's going to happen. And uh, so I'm, I think I might be a little bit like you. I'm waiting for the right people to arrive (laughs) and who say, I can do that or I'm already doing that. Can I bring my program to your sandbox? So I'm more in the kind of role of wanting to host people's creativity and projects up there in Legacy Forest rather than to create a whole institution and call it one thing that has one curriculum. So School for Knowing Home, for me, is pretty broad and can be quite inclusive and already is. There's an outdoor kindergarten that's happening there now. So some of the times we have real little kids up there on the land. And I believe that this is going to grow. There are simply going to be more and more programs, particularly in the summertime with camping. And at the heart of it, Michael, is I think the, the key in all this work that I try to be about all these years is How can we deepen our, meaning all of us, experience of belonging? That I belong here on this planet. I belong here in this life. I belong here in this body. And I belong here with others. And I belong here with the trees and the mountains and the rivers and the fish. I mean, I'm really part of this thing. And I experience myself as part of it. And I just had a feeling like, if you want to speak of young people, um, struggle with that sense of belonging to anything. Uh, and a um, sense of belonging to themselves. You know, I run into a lot of those questions of, people who feel they don't belong anywhere right. and the and also speaking of diversity many people from different backgrounds who uh, are their families are new immigrants or whatever and they really struggle with the question of where they belong right. oh yeah yeah they can't go back to the uh, traditions that their parents have. They don't feel fully a part of, you know, the society they're in. Uh, they're different in some visible way. Uh, so that question of belonging is actually very, 
very profound for, yeah. for many people. Um, we haven't talked about it, but I, last summer I, I went to your, uh, your Shakespeare festival um, uh, where some local performers were putting on Midsummer Night's Dream. And um, it's most extraordinary. It's a, you know, a little kind of natural amphitheater on the side of a hill up near Story House. And this quite elaborately beautiful set that was sort of looked like the way Shakespeare would have been played back in Shakespearean days. Mm. <laughs> and then this uh, troupe of uh, local performers with, uh, you know, a few semi-professional or whatever professional actors in some lead roles. Um, but it was really wonderful. Mm -hmm. It was really wonderful. Mm -hmm. And then we haven't mentioned that the the South Whidbey Waldorf School is on mm -hmm. this land. So you have the Waldorf School on the mm -hmm. land, you have the Shakespeare Festival on the land, mm -hmm. you have the Whidbey Institute on the land. Yes. And you have uh, the uh, you have the uh, the school for knowing home on the mm -hmm. land. And um, and all of these are things that you either invited in or yeah. Invented somewhere yeah. along the way. Yeah. One thing I wanted to come back to, because um, speaking of legacy, I think it's an extraordinary part of your legacy. Goes and again, I want to come back to the parallels between Commonwealth and the Whidbey Institute. Uh, there's this new little history of a Whid South Whidbey Island out that just came out, and it confirms something I knew, which was that. Uh, South Whidbey was struggling economically in the late 50s and early 60s, and then these hippies began to show up. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you, know, you know, coming out of Vietnam, coming out of sort of leaving the cities, so the same new immigrants who came out to West Marin and Bolinas showed up up here. You know, mm -hmm. the, the parallels between... Hmm. West Marin and mm. South Whidbey are fascinating. Mm. West Marin is to San Francisco what uh, South Whidbey is to Seattle, and uh, Bolinas is to West Marin and San Francisco very much what Langley is to mm -hmm. South Whidbey and Seattle. So you had this yeah. invasion of new settlers in the 60s, right. uh, of which you were a part. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you were a central part. You and Vivian, the creation of the Chinook Learning Center, you were a central part of that. And um, and you and and so the Chinook Learning Center, not to personalize it, um, and then the Whidbey Institute was a strong magnet, not only for mm -hmm. the thought leaders that we've talked about uh, that were part of the Earth and Spirit Conference, but Many people moved to South Whidbey in part to be part of the Chinook Learning Center mm -hmm. or part of the Whidbey Institute. Mm -hmm. And then whatever their experience, some continued to love it, some became alienated, some whatever yes. happened to them, yes. but they stayed, or many of them mm -hmm. stayed. And so there's this Chinook Whidbey diaspora in mm -hmm. uh, South mm -hmm. Whidbey Island um, with many, many people whose lives have intersected with uh, your work and mm -hmm. who have been marked by this experience. And mm -hmm. it, I suspect, has been a tremendous contributor to the extraordinary density of creative people on South Whidbey. In other words, mm -hmm. I think that, not to give it too much credit, but not to give it too little credit, mm -hmm. a great many fair. of the people who settled here... Right came here at least in part because of the Whidbey Institute or the Chinook Learning Center. I think that's a fair synopsis. Right. Um, sometimes I've been so close to it, I haven't realized what happens out there further and mm -hmm. further beyond that. Mm -hmm. But recently, well, it's happened every now and then, there'll be some group of us somewhere and somebody will say, well, I moved to the island, and then it starts this chain reaction of people saying how they got here. 
And a lot of people say they came to Chinook. And I've, I've sort of lost track of that happening. Or, And then, of course, their friends came, friends of friends. And a lot of people, if you go back on some kind of family tree, um, there is this, you know, presence, as you've been saying, of Chinook could be instituted. And it's happening still. People will move to the islands. There's some way it's connected often. And I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, but it's got to be at least in the low hundreds of families that... It could be. An awful lot of people, you know. And see, the same happens with the Waldorf School, which right. we started here right. on the land, right. and now it's just right up there. Right. Um, a lot of families have moved to the island so their kids could be in that mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm. So again, it's this experience that we both have of being sort of serial social entrepreneurs and organizers, <laughs> and then these yeah. communities grow up around these projects in various ways. And, um, and then the institutions go through whatever struggles the institutions are going through, but the broader global or certainly national community, really global community of which we're a part, the, the community of ideas, um, and then the local community of people who settled here and created. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a conversation with our mutual friend Vicki Robbins the other day, and, and she has this wonderful uh, line about what it's like to live in Langley, and she calls it co-housing without the meetings. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's good. Oh, yeah. And, you know, just that sense that one is in the presence of mm -hmm. a community of people that, Actually, this is the real point I'd like to make, that not only did people move here to be part of the Whitby Institute or the, the Chinook Learning Center or the Waldorf School, as you point out, but then it reached a certain critical mass of people and other people moved here to be part of that broader community, which in turn had been in large part seeded by this. Mm -hmm. So it's had an enormous um, cultural impact, it seems to me. I think that's... I think that's fair yeah. to say. Yeah. yeah, And it's an interesting part of the legacy. It's, it's not one that one automatically reflects on. Well, see, this is where we thank my father, who liked to go fishing. Right. He start, he's the one he who started, started it all. Right. <laughs> well, he, his son became a fisher for the souls <laughs> of man. <laughs> so so um, at this point, with your having had your heart experience as I had one 10 years ago yeah. um, uh, and look I open this to a change of heart and mind is now needed to bring a great turning so we both know that heart attacks or heart surgeries are represent some kind of change of heart and mind you know um, and you just went through it and now are fully recovered and are feeling strong where do you find yourself today, leaving aside all the projects, all of the uh, organizing and the building and the mm. developing, where do you in your life journey find yourself today? What matters to you now? Oh, Michael. Um, well, in truth, these projects, mm -hmm. um, they do matter to me. Mm -hmm. And um, they are the source, as I was saying earlier, far less are they the source of anxiety mm -hmm. and bewilderment and angst and mm -hmm. why isn't this working? Or I can see what it's going to take to make it work and it's always another $100,000. That I, I, I feel that I am really called to enjoy my life, to enjoy. In fact, when I was sort of at this, just coming out of my recovery from my heart experience, I was deeply reflecting on all this stuff and said, well, you know what? I got to be one. And it was, it was my way of saying, you know what? I got to be a human being. Mm -hmm. How lucky is that? I have no idea how lucky that is, mm -hmm. but... What a privilege to have been here on the planet as a human. I mean, I really started looking at it in sort of more cosmic 
or evolutionary terms. And it's like, hey, I got to play in the World Series. Uh, so that's become my sense of just how fortunate you can feel by being, just being here. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? Uh, A friend of mine uh, now who has passed on, but a wonderful young woman in Bolinas who died of breast cancer at an early age after nursing her husband through cancer before her. Uh, And she uh, had a little saying in Spanish under her email thing, and it said in Spanish, disfrutando la vida pura, enjoying pure life, Mm. you know. And I I really resonate to that. There's a a point at which, and some people reach it earlier than we do, but there's a sense in which just the sheer joy of being alive and and the endless paradox of what it means to be human, you know? Because I know for myself at least that to be human is to carry not only light, but also darkness in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh used to talk about how he, when he thought about the pirates off the coast of Vietnam and Thailand who would board boats and kill the men, women, and children, yeah. and he said, um, imagine yourself into the capacity to be one of those pirates, you know. And for some reason, I've always had the capacity to see that those dark parts are part of me as well as whatever mm-hmm. the light is. And that yeah. when you talk about you got to be human, for me that means we get to be in the presence of both the darkness and the light in ourselves as well as in the culture and, mm-hmm. and what's unfolding on earth. Yes, I think I, I, I agree. And I think that for me, the experience of being human, as I kind of try to look at a bigger picture and myself in a bigger picture, it means that I... It's just like in the early days of this raggedy old farm. What I had to do and loved doing was picking up stuff and sometimes discarding it, but so I would save stuff. People would wonder, why did I save all these old rusty chains and all this interesting you know, stuff that I was finding around the place? And I had saved it sometimes for years, and then later on I'd make something out of it, or it became part of something else. And I realized I was sort of working with almost no budget, so kind of anything might matter and you received any cast off that somebody gave to you mm-hmm. because it was like it, it just simply had to be a creative endeavor that's the only way you're going to do this is by because nobody gave you a grant in fact a grant in the beginning could have spoiled the whole fun of it because suddenly you'd have to be terribly responsible <laughs> it was um, it was much more playful to to make things out of things and I think part of being human, for me, is when you look at us among other species, we are so amazingly creative and inventive and reflective. And think of what we have a capacity for. So why wouldn't we want to just explore as much as possible these capacities? And so that's why I wanted to build here at the farm what I described earlier as a resource-rich learning environment. So the, the capacities were just also right here. And it, it could just take you, you know, in lots and lots of directions and just say, hey, we're here to be creative and, and help create a good experience of living for ourselves and our families and our communities and somehow may that influence what happens you know further out there you know and for the planet itself we we feel responsible and our workers may be very local mm-hmm. and then believe that somehow those ripples it's the ripples that'll go out from that that 
help in the big process. You know, I have a strange experience that, of course, I feel the agony of what's happening to the earth and the people of the earth with great intensity. And, of course, I've spent my life trying to be of service in small ways. And like you, I've noticed that you can stay in one place for 40 years and do things that are small, but the ripples may go out. And I also deeply agree with you profoundly that living with hope is far better than living with cynicism or despair, not because we know we're going to, quote, win, but because it's the most interesting way to live. Yeah, there you go. Right. So, and you quote uh, uh, in one place or another, or actually maybe it was on the Whidbey Institute site, but Václav Havel's great distinction between mm -hmm. optimism and hope, about how optimism is the belief that everything's going to go right and hope is a mm -hmm. deep orientation of the human soul that can be held in the darkest of times. So it's, Brother David makes the same distinction between optimism and hope. Mm -hmm. Although Brother David actually says, hope is what is left after all your hopes have been dashed. You know, so it's, uh, but the point is that yeah, that's uh, great. there's a core distinction yeah. that I love that sense of hope as a deep orientation of the human soul that can be held in the darkest of times. Mm. Mm. So having said that, that one commits to a life of service, that one commits <clears throat> to doing everything one possibly can, uh, there is for me nonetheless a great solace in the sense that there is this absolute perfection in the laws of the universe and the cosmos that the universe is unfolding exactly as it is unfolding. And that we do have what appears to be free choice to make choices as a species and individual. And hopefully we can do whatever we can for climate change, toxic chemicals, injustice, the thousand other wrongs. Um, we can't know if we're gonna win but, I, and I'm just curious for you, I take some solace when Thomas Berry speaks about uh, the universe story as the only story that does not have a context, that, you know, is beyond context. It's the original story and therefore the basis for all true spiritual life of our time. To me, that means to be in awe of the mystery of the unfolding whatever it brings, you know, whether we label it good or label it bad, um, somehow to have a sense of trust, fundamental trust in life and in the universe is to go beyond good and evil and go beyond our attachment to the outcomes that we're trying to achieve yes. to save this precious right. creation. I'm just curious how you feel about that. The trap, perhaps, is to be overly dependent, emotionally dependent upon outcomes. Right. And, and dependent upon the prospect of success. Right. And I think what's difficult for a lot of people is hope is sometimes equated with success. Right. And I think what you're describing, which you've just done so beautifully... Um, I, that's, that's where I am, mm -hmm. is that hope is, it's really, it's like the word love. Yeah, I mean, you just can go forever trying to describe what you think you mean. But it is something, it seems to me it's probably the reason that we're here today as, as the human species, is because this is hardwired in us, whether you call it hope or whatever, is to, you go on with some deep sense that this is what you're to do. You're, you're to keep traveling. You're to try it again. You keep creating. You keep loving. Uh, you don't succumb to terminal disappointment. Um, so um, I think for us to unhook success from hope is important. And Meg Wheatley, I think, is trying to do that in her book, So Far From Home. But I do not think 
that that says to us we unhook from efforts. No. Um, and to do the very, very best that we can. You maximize effort, but there's a level in the yoga tradition uh, that you're actually more skillful yeah. uh, in effort if you're not too attached to uh, yes. success, to the outcome. That you're actually more skillful if um, you, you, do, you do your absolute best and whatever's going to happen is going to yeah. happen. You know? Yeah. Elliot says, we have not failed only because we've gone on trying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you and I, have, and a lot of us have been through enough mm-hmm. uh, with institutions and families and everything else that there are many points where you, you could just say, well, that's mm-hmm. it. But, you know, I've been having the most remarkable experience because you're very interested in young people and you're working with younger people, but... I've been having the most remarkable experience with another wave of new settlers that's coming into West Marin and I know is coming into Whidbey Island too. Young people in their 20s to early 30s, to call it that age bracket, who are coming out here and I honestly have the experience that this is the generation that that we've been waiting for, in quotes, because this generation is, what are their metaphors? Many of them are part of the, what they call the DIY movement, the do-it-yourself movement, or they call themselves part of the maker movement, you make stuff yourself, or the reskilling movement yeah. is another yeah. language for it. And here they are, again, like you in the 60s and early 70s, they don't have any money, yeah. they don't have any jobs, yeah. they're living in really marginal situations, yeah. and yet, unlike our generation they are not filled with despair. They are filled with hope, and they are creating and making things. When Katrina happened in New Orleans, they went down to rebuild. Mm -hmm. When the big storm hit in New York and stuff, Mm -hmm. they were out in the boroughs Mm -hmm. rebuilding. And it's really interesting to me that they don't at all deny the crisis that they are living in. But they were born into that crisis. Mm -hmm. And so they are living in it, and maybe it's just because they're in their 20s, and sort of it's part of the, you know, adolescent and 20s sense of invincibility. I don't know. But what, what I watch is these young people with no money, just like the 60s, just like what we did in the 60s with mm-hmm. no money, inventing and building and creating with some sense of hope. And I just find it a remarkable generational movement. I don't know whether you've had any experience with it. Well, the new director here at uh-huh. Woodby Institute, Jerry, uh-huh. is keenly interested in this. Uh-huh. And with Heather, whom you've mentioned, uh, I think are well into it and in creating mm-hmm. programs, experiences here on this land for these people. And it's, it's happening this weekend in the winter gathering. I think there's just more and more people of that layer, that generation that you're talking about, who are going to come here because, um, well, because they like this place, um, but they're, I think they're finding in some of the elders, the Rick and Grassies and you and me and mm-hmm. Greg, and mm-hmm. a spirit that says, come on. Right. Welcome. Um, come on and you create. Yeah. We're going to just. We're either going to watch you or we're going to do it together. We're going to um, witness and support you. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And those are the, it is out of that spirit that I'm wanting to create School for Knowing Home. Mm-hmm. Um, that I'm not the, the engineer who's going to create another organization, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm the inviter. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's happening. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen right here. It'll mm-hmm. continue to happen. Mm-hmm. I've always felt, um, Michael, that at the heart of what we've been trying to do here, what I've been trying to do, is um, is to give ourselves the encouragement to create mm-hmm. and to watch it exceed what we thought was possible. Where people say, I didn't know I could do that. Or we didn't know we could do that. Mm-hmm. Um and I, if that spirit is alive and well here on this land, 
it will continue to be a magnet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as we begin to wind up here, let me ask you this question. Um, uh, what haven't we discussed? What haven't I asked you that would complete this conversation? What, what have we not touched on or emphasized enough? Hmm. Now that takes some thought. Mm -hmm. um, One of the things that I'm grateful for, um, though in these many years we've had, you know, our share of challenges and difficulties, we really have been spared tragedies and scandals mm -hmm. and major things that you wouldn't want. Mm -hmm. And... In the earlier years, like with David Spangler and some of the Finhorn influence, which was very positive for us, I think that we learned to invoke, um, well, one word would be protection. Um, keep us safe. Keep us, <laughs> if we can do it, from huge, overwhelming impossible to deal with situations. And so we've, we've made it. Um, so how did that happen? That would be a question maybe for another time, but how do you think these, how does Commonweal remain? What is it that all these years has been a through line of vitality um, and confidence and ingenuity I mean real cleverness on your part how is it that some things endure um, I want this place to endure we say we're not wedded to success and we mean that and we don't want it to disappear just through negligence uh, or mishap um, we would love it if next generations also, you know, can come to these places and do what they need to do. Um, in, my, in the early years, when I would look back and already see a certain path that we had taken, we already had some history, I would think, well, what is it? I, I'm sure I don't know where I'm going, but if I look back, I can see where we've come. And it's pretty consistent that somehow we have been blessed, sustained, um, or I've been willing and my friends have to pick it up and try it again. Um, so my word for it would be, uh, and I used to go around when nobody was listening to me and sing, and I would sing that line from Amazing Grace. Uh, Through many dangers, toils, Can and you snares, we have already come. Would you sing it? No, 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 I'll say it for you. <laughs> what? It, it is grace that's brought us safe thus uh -huh. far, and grace will lead us home. Uh -huh. So what's that? Um, that is the mystery that we spoke of in the beginning, uh, like the fog that still hasn't lifted. That there is, I believe, some way that these uh, loving efforts of ours are upheld, they're sustained. Not permanently and not without air, but they are, but we will be, um, what is the word? Well, blessed. That, that's a good one for me. We will be blessed in our um, efforts to maintain integrity with each other and integrity with the land and integrity with the generations that are going to come. And then say, if not saying, tis grace, the grace of God, the grace of the universe, 
that has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. How about that? So the small boy walking on the curved beach on Whidbey Island near his father's fishing shack, picking up stones and throwing pieces of wood into the water with a newspaper route, sees a little column in the paper talking about the New Testament and a religious message. Um, goes to school and high school where his father was coaching and teaching. Um, uh, his older brother, a star quarterback, his younger sister leading the singing group. He is uh, helping with equipment and the sports things and so on as the middle child. Um, his brother is killed in a mountain climbing accident. He uh, goes to college at the University of Washington. Uh, difficult time having to support himself working in a hardware store downtown. Um, but uh, finds his way into this church community where uh, campus church, where the minister inspires him and recommends him for a position at Princeton Theological Seminary and uh, goes to Princeton Theological Seminary and the world opens up. He's never been to the East Coast. Um, he uh, takes two and a half years off hitchhikes around the world, no money, spends a lot of time in India, teaches English in Iran, visits the Middle East, comes back, completes his degree in theology. His mentor from the campus church calls him up and asks him if he will succeed him as the minister. He becomes the minister of the campus church. He, uh, this incredibly beautiful young woman, <laughs> stands up to make an announcement and they start having secret coffees because the minister is not supposed to date anybody from the uh, congregation and then they announce that they are engaged and to be married. And uh, he finds himself in the 60s uh, going down to Selma, the radical minister of a conservative congregation which nonetheless likes him and supports him in this journey. He. Uh, uh, realizes that uh, uh, 10 years is going to be enough in the uh, college ministry. He's bought a old Finnish farm on, on Whidbey Island. Uh, and uh, George MacLeod, who founded the Iona uh, community, not, not founded, who, yeah, who founded the Iona mm -hmm. community in the 1930s, uh, where Fritz and Vivian had visited uh, comes to speak uh, at the uh, uh, at the at the church, and Fritz and Vivian invite him out, and show him the farm, and say what they're thinking of doing. And George says, "When you leave the church, close the door and say, damn. And uh, so you, in fact, do that. And uh, use your last paycheck to buy two bicycles and a stereo system." come out here with no money to this totally collapsed farmhouse and a hundred acres of land and um, with a handful of friends who've been meeting with you in Washington, you uh, uh, co-create the Chinook Learning Center and you run it for 19 years, turn it over to other people, go on to create the Whitby Institute. It turns out the other folks can't keep Chinook going, so... In effect, uh, the community turns back to you. You and Vivian come back, uh, merge the Chinook Center under the Whidbey Institute with a new board and with you again as the uh, director. Um, and then uh, the next six or seven years you spend uh, in a really uh, extraordinarily creative period uh, building many of the main buildings here, the Thomas Berry Hall and the sanctuary and just a lot of the infrastructure of the place. And uh, again, you turn it over to others and uh, 
again, there's a period of travail as uh, six directors come through until you find in, in Jerry and his wonderful program officer, Heather, um, the leadership that it needs to uh, really strengthen the place. While well, you are on to your next great journey with uh, the Legacy Project and the School for Knowing Home. And then uh, last year, uh, a series of uh, heart attacks and uh, heart surgery and the difficult recovery from it and coming out of it with a new sense uh, that this is a time just to be uh, and to bless the miracle of being human and to continue your work, but simply in a spirit of, of gratitude and, and joy. Uh, at least that's what I'm taking away from this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Fritz, for being mm. with us at the new school. Great joy and a privilege. I look forward to uh, another 10 years of doing this work together, at least. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. Me too. Yeah. <laughs>